with your pastor this morning and uh, to have heard what God is already doing uh, in Ivory Coast with them. Uh, Ravi was sharing with me in the subsequent time since I got an email back and forth with him about what God's done. Forty some odd people that have come to Christ, 46 people that have come to Christ just in the time that they've been on the ground in Ivory Coast. So um, God is blessing and we need to continue to pray for them. I am incredibly excited about being here. I know people are supposed to say that, right? Come on, you guys are going to have to work with me, all right? It's cold. I know, you know, we're going to have to do like aerobics or something to... You guys are way back there, some of you. It's like the lights are... Some of you are not buying this. I'm going to have to work hard, I can tell. I, I love I love Barrett. I love Robbie. They're friends. I feel like I know you already because we've spent so much time together. I've spent so much time with your pastor. I've spent so much time with Robbie. I've heard so much of the journey of this church. That pole is in a really odd place. There's some of you that I feel like I'm going to play peekaboo with all morning. And that's going to be really weird. I'm going to have to run over here to some of you, and we'll have to do that. It's really going to be crazy. Um, but just heard about the heart of all that God's doing here and the, the amazing things that, uh, that God is beginning to do through this church. A- after seeing the video and, uh, and, and, and kind of um, just beginning to, to hear the heart of the things that God's welling up through this congregation, I, I have to tell you, I, you know, I'm a little going, why am I here this morning? Uh, because I because I hear the, the the seeds of the amazing things and the amazing understanding of God's word and 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 the beginnings of of God being able to stir through this people to do to do amazing things um, for the fatherless. Uh, let, let's stop and pray, and then then I just want to I just want to begin to tell you a little of our story and uh, and and for us to just kind of talk and, and look a little bit into God's word and then just talk a little bit practically about some things that we can do. So, Father, thank you. God, thank you this morning that you have invited us um, into your throne room. And in all your glory, God, that you've pulled back the veil of heaven and you've given us a glimpse of yourself. And God, today we confess that this is all about you. Lord, we lay ourselves on the altar before you. God, we confess that we are without resource, that we're without capability, and God, we need you. God, I confess that I need you this morning. Lord, I pray in this time that you would inhabit this place, God, that you would speak through your word, God, that you would be our teacher that you would come to our aid, that you would come to our rescue. And God, we claim the promise because we know that's who you are. And God, we have such incredible evidence of that because we know that you've already done that. And it's been so powerfully demonstrated in the person of Jesus. And so God, we cling to that hope this morning. Father, we thank you for your adopting grace that when we were lost, God, when we were hopeless, when we could not save ourselves, when we could not rescue ourselves, when when we had nothing, that you gave us everything in Christ. And so, God, today we pray that you would um, teach us something, show us something, and God, that you would help us to understand a little bit more about what it means to be part of your kingdom and to be your children. And it's in the name of your son we pray. Amen.
I really hoped that my family was going to be able to be here with me this morning. <clears throat> They're not because pestilence has hit the Morton house. Um, it's Thanksgiving. I, I really, you know, it's, it's like every holiday that seems to happen. We, it, it's, it's, it's almost like clockwork. We plan a vacation, we book a condo, and like sickness hits. I think we should get like antibiotics to come with a condo every time we do it. It's, it's like, we, you know, we plan a vacation to Disney World and we get kids that get strep and it's, you know, and then we're those parents. I mean, we're just like everybody else's parents. We go, okay, here are the antibiotics. I don't care if your throat hurts, make Mickey think you're happy. And so, you know, off we go, you know, because we have the back of our minds, we're going, it costs us a million dollars to be here and this is the happiest place on earth. So get happy. And it, and that doesn't really matter whether, you know, your, your, your kids are adopted or your kids are, you know, to you or whatever, it's all kind of the same. We, we didn't, um, Denise and I didn't set out to be adoptive parents. We didn't set out to be orphan advocates. We didn't really set out to be anything. Um, as, as a matter of fact, um, I, I have to tell you that I, I sort of entered into all this stuff pretty, pretty reluctantly. Um, when I was, I was teaching at uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary up in, in Louisville, Kentucky, um, we had journeyed for several years through, um, through infertility and had kind of worked through those issues. And that's the story of a lot of people who have, have come to adoption. And we had kind of worked through things and we're, you know, we're working through and praying through the ethics of that stuff and, you know, just kind of struggling. And there was a point that, that, that struggle led my wife to, to, to dive pretty deeply into the scriptures and, and diving into the scriptures led her to begin to, to, to become just really convictionally impassioned about adoption. And so there was a time, there was a point where she came and she said to me, she said, I think we really need to think about adoption. And I gave her the most mature spiritual answer I have ever given in my life. I looked at her and said, absolutely not. Didn't pray about it, didn't think about it, didn't wrestle with it, didn't. Because I had all these preconceived notions and all this stuff and a lot of baggage and a lot of just whatever. And, and I can tell you, for our family, the hero of our story is, is really my wife. I'm the guy with the big mouth that stands up and talks in front of people and writes books and all that. But, but my wife is really the, she's really the rock. And I wish she were here this morning so that you could have a conversation with her because um, she, she was the quiet spiritual strength under it and the one that God used to, to start the ball rolling. Now, let me tell you something about what God did in her life. She didn't. Um, begin to leave open Bibles all over the house. She didn't start to write in, on the mirror in lipstick. She didn't leave post-it notes on the steering wheel. She didn't, you know, start to buy baby magazines and tear out pages and leave them all. She didn't do any of that stuff. What she did is she prayed, and she prayed intensely, and she she took the, the, the strategy of the persistent widow, and she knew that her husband was being an incredible knucklehead, and she also knew that, that God had shown her a truth in Scripture, but God had also given her something convictionally in her heart, and, and she, she, knew, she knew that God had done something. So she prayed. And she prayed, and she prayed, and she prayed, and she prayed. And as a husband, she didn't have to talk to me about it over the dinner table. She didn't have to talk to me about it while we were, 
you know, going on vacation or while we were hanging out on the weekend. She didn't have to talk to me about it in any of those settings. We didn't, we didn't have to talk about it because God was wearing me out. But I was also filled up with a lot of questions and a lot of angst, and there was a lot of stuff, and there was a lot of baggage that, that I began to have to work through. And here were some of the questions. And, and let me tell you that I'm, a little, I'm, more, I'm more than a little embarrassed about some of the questions that I started to wrestle through. Questions went something like this. How in the world can we afford an adoption? I'm working on a professor's salary, which is roughly just above the poverty line. Got all this education debt and stuff sitting out there. How in the world am I going to swing this? What if this thing doesn't turn out the way we plan and it turns into a train wreck and we have our hearts set on a child and the process blows up in front of us and it doesn't, it doesn't turn out the way we want it to? And it doesn't turn out like a fairy tale. What if we adopt a child and there's something wrong with it? What if we adopt a child and it doesn't love us back? Some of you guys are shaking. Some of you are refusing to look at me right now. Because you went, oh my goodness, this just got heavy and we're only like six minutes into the sermon. But I'm just telling you, that's the stuff that was going on in my gut. And I was wrestling and I wasn't sleeping at night, and I, was, and, and, and I was a guy that was teaching seminary. I was teaching other people theology. I was teaching other people the Bible. But I was also in a little bit of a place of rebellion. Well, there was a point where God humbled me, and he said, Big boy, you need to live into your rhetoric. If you're going to stand up in front of students, and you're going to tell them that God is who he is, and God is sufficient and God's word is what it is, and it's truth, and it's inerrant, and it's infallible, and God has given us sufficiency, and he's given us a way to know him through his word, then you better get there, and you better find what you need to find to answer those questions. Because if you believe what you believe, then the answers are there. Now, the other thing you need to know about me is I'm a nerd really like big time ought to have tape on my glasses nerd ought to have a pocket protector and so what I did is, is I went and I just started looking very systematically beginning to end start at the beginning of the story move to the end of the story and I don't think I had ever done that there had never been a Sunday school class there had never been a systematic theology class there had never been a book there had never been anything in anything I had experienced none of my training anything else that had ever helped me to understand adoption that way it had never uh, never helped me to understand God's heart for orphans that way and so I, I went there and started doing that digging for myself and what I found blew my mind When I started looking at the Bible from that perspective, what I found about God and what I found about his heart for orphans and what I found about, it, about an understanding for adoption 
just literally melted me. Let me start in a place and just tell you the thing that started the, started the journey. Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 3. Sure, I knew that Paul talked about adoption. It's a great spiritual metaphor. It's an awesome way to talk about the way that we're brought to God, and it was a, it was a neat little illustration in Scripture. But talk about it leaping off the page and becoming practical. Paul says, Blessed be the God, of our Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now check this out. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace in which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now, let's just kind of stop right there and unpack that for just a second. Without getting into the theological nuancing and having the debate that nobody wants to have this morning because y'all don't want to stay here that long. That was, that was a joke. You guys can laugh. The, 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 the point of this verse is, is that what I, what I finally you know, kind of began to see and what jumped off the page is that adoption for God is not plan B. That what Ephesians 1 says, what verse 4 says, is that God, for God, adoption to bring us into his family wasn't plan B, it was plan A. It says, before the foundation of the world. So before God spoke the world into being, it was his plan that when the world was broken by sin, which he knew was going to happen, now this will blow your mind, this is going to ruin your lunch, this is going to mess your nap up today. This is going to kind of probably tilt your world a little bit off its axis. Before the world, before the world was going to be broken by sin, God knew that it was going to be broken by sin, and the, the process by which he was going to bring us back to himself is adoption. Whoa. Now here's what else I figured out. As I sat and wrestled with that, Something else became abundantly clear to me. That all those questions that I had about adopting a child, God didn't have any of those questions about me. How much could, was an adoption going to cost? That, that question never occurred to God because, because God paid the ultimate price to redeem you and me. He gave his own son. Well, what about what about if 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 the if if the thing was going to be a train wreck? God knew it was going to be a train wreck. He knew that he was going to send his own son to Earth, and he was going to be spit on and reviled and rejected, and it was going to be a mess, and that his son was going to have to pay the price of, of being humiliated and crucified by the people that he created in love. Well, what about if what about if there was something wrong with that child and 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 there was going to be some brokenness or some hurt that was going to be hard to heal or maybe even maybe even impossible to heal hey all i've got to tell you is look in the mirror because you and i are no prize we're not the cutest baby in the nursery we're a mess and God didn't count that against us. He, he looked at us and he said, even in our brokenness, even in our messiness, he sent his son to die for us. And he redeemed us in our mess. 
and he continues to walk with us and continues to be patient with us and he continues to provide for our redemption and he provides for our sanctification day by day by his spirit as he changes us a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more and conforms us into the image of his son. What about if that child doesn't doesn't love me back? Well, there are a lot of days that I look rebelliously into the face of God and stamp my foot and say, I'm going to do it my way. And yet God continues to faithfully walk with me and patiently walk with me and sometimes even patiently discipline me in order to conform me to the image of his son and to bring me to the place of, of completion in what he started with me in salvation. There was a point where I looked into the face of God through his word and said, I have not one argument. And if God has called us to do it, his grace is sufficient to complete it. And so we jumped off and took a nosedive into doing something we didn't have a clue to do. Now, I wish I could stand here and tell you that I was so completely certain at that point that it was just like gung-ho and it was, it was all good days from there. And it wasn't. It was like a roller coaster. It was a mess. There were some days it was great. There were some days it was messy. There were some days we were on top of the world. There were some days that I, you know, I went and hid under my desk. But God was faithful through the whole process. Fast forward about nine or ten months into that process. God provided for us then to be standing in Ukraine in a Ukrainian orphanage ready to meet a 16-month-old little boy for the very first time. It was actually Thanksgiving Day. We're about to celebrate the 10-year anniversary of that this year. We were wrung out tired. We'd taken an overnight train. I don't recommend that to anybody. Oh, my goodness, the cultural experience we had on that one night. In that moment, our lives changed forever. When we met that little blonde-haired, blue-eyed, chubby, cross-eyed, little bundle of energy who still melts my heart to this day. But here's the other thing I wasn't prepared for. Part of what changed my life was not him. He changed my life because he came home with us and he became ours. And his birthright changed because the judge eventually said he's yours and he changed his name and he changed his his parents' name on his birth certificate and everything about his reality changed and he was declared to be us. His inheritance changed and everything about him changed. And he was adopted into our family and his legal records were made such that it appears that he was never not of us. And that's just like our adoption in Christ. That we are made full heirs and full participants in the family of God. And so that was an incredible reality. But here's the thing that changed me forever. It was the 200 plus kids that we walked out of that orphanage and left. It was the smell of that place. And some of you guys know what I'm talking about. 
I don't know how to describe this, but Eastern Europe, every, every place in the world, there's a little bit of a different kind of thing. But on Eastern Europe is one of those places, and, and because our kids are adopted from there, and we've been in and out of orphanages over and over and over and over and over in Eastern Europe, I've, 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 come, to, I've come to understand this. I don't know what it is, but every Eastern European orphanage that I have ever stepped in over the course of the last 10 years, they all smell the same. And every time I step into one, I'm catapulted back 10 years ago into that moment. It did something. Well, there were some other things <clears throat> that, that we kind of found. And I want to kind of walk through that with you today a little bit and to, to maybe kind of help you. To, to see some things and to find some things and to understand how the gospel's relevant to that and how this is a part of the call that God places on our lives to be the church and to, and to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. First thing, if, if you'll turn your Bible to Mark chapter 12. Um, in Mark chapter 12, we, we find this scribe. Um, you guys ever, do you ever think of Jesus having a sense of humor? Yeah, no. Most of you are lulled to sleep at this point, I can tell. I thought it was cold enough in here that you wouldn't be, but no? Hello? Anybody out there? Is this thing on? Are we? You know, I think, you know, culturally, we kind of think of Jesus as that, like, blonde-haired, blue-eyed guy that's on most of our grandmother's walls. You know, kind of got that faraway look in his eyes, sort of aloof. You know, or, or like the movies, you know, Jesus is kind of walking around like he's, you know, dropped a little acid or something and he's just kind of, you know, th that's not Jesus at all. I think Jesus was very present with people. He was there. He was in the moment. If you really read the gospels and you read them with the edge that they're written with, Jesus had kind of a sarcastic edge to him at times. I didn't really mean for you to like check the thermostat or so turn it down so people will kind of get cold and they'll pay attention. It's, but, you know, but, but Jesus kind of had this edge to him. And this is kind of one of those passages where when we read it, I don't think we get the context of what's going on. So, so here's this scribe, and he, comes, you know, he sort of comes walking up to Jesus. And I think he's like, he's like one of these guys that's like this kind of you know, sort of nerdy, sort of um, you know, like lawyer type that walks up to Jesus, and he's trying to have an aha moment with him, kind of a gotcha moment. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to put something out to Jesus that's going to get him so twisted up that he's not going to be able to answer, and, and, and I'm going I'm to show everybody that Jesus is a fraud. Yeah, well, lots of luck with that. And so, um, so here's kind of how it goes. And so one of the scribes came up and, and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, he, he asked him. So, so seeing that Jesus answered all the other questions well, I think I'm smart enough that I'm going to throw out a question that he can't answer well. Which commandment is the most important of all? So he lobs Jesus a softball. Let's see how that works out for him. Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. And, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor uh, as yourself. <clears throat> there is no other commandment greater than this. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. Wow, that's awesome. So the dude looks at Jesus and said, Hey, you got the question right, Jesus. Dillweed. Um, you know, of course he did. He's the son of God. He's going to get them all right. 
He said, Teacher, you, you truly said that there is one and there's no other beside him. And to love, love him with all the heart and, and with all the understanding and with all strength and to love one's neighbors, oneself is much more than, than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. To which Jesus saw that he'd answered wisely and said to him, You're not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one dared answer him any more questions. Here's, what, here's what's happening and here's the sarcastic moment that we miss. As a scribe of Israel... This dude walked up to Jesus, and he's got a particular clothing rig on that is sort of impressive. He walks up, and he's got a phylactery tied right between his eyes that has four passages of Scripture in it. One of them is Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. You shall teach it to your children, da-da-da, da-da-da, da-da-da. This dude has this verse tied right smack between his eyes. And so what Jesus has just said to him is, Bro, you have just missed something that is so obvious that it's tied right between your eyes, but yet you have missed it and you're not doing it. Because what you've missed is, is that you're supposed to love God, and out of that love for God, you're supposed to love people. And out of the love and devotion that you have for God, and and who you think God is, and the worship that you have for God, you're supposed to, to tangibly live that to people. And there's a point to how you how you worship God that's supposed to be extended to people and Jesus kind of throws a sarcasm bomb on him that says, hey, Captain Obvious, quit trying to be so religious. Quit trying to check off all the boxes. Quit trying to keep all the feasts. Quit trying to to, to make sure that you give to all the offerings. Quit trying to do all the things that are expected of you and just hit the basics. Love God and out of that devotion, love people. Why? Well, I'm glad you asked. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Run back over there for just a second. I promise you this has a point. Deuteronomy 10. We're we're actually going to start back. It says verse 18 on the screen. We're actually going to start back in verse 16. If you go all the way back in the Old Testament, God has been hitting this drumbeat with his people all the way along. From the very beginning, this actually goes all the way back to Job. If you want to go all the way back in in chronological order and begin to work all the way through the chronology of the scriptures, Job was saying this all the way back in, in the time of like Genesis chapter 10, and it runs all the way through the scriptures over and over and over again. God is saying this through his people. Deuteronomy 10, verse 16. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, now that I have your attention. But that's important, because here's what he's saying. He's saying to them, don't just do stuff on the outside. Don't just do the ceremonial stuff. Don't just do the stuff that people pay attention to on the outside. Don't just check all the boxes on the outside. Do do the stuff from the heart. 
Do the stuff that matters from the inside. Be no longer stubborn, for the Lord your, your Lord for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast, and, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you great and, and, and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons. Now the Lord has made you as numerous as the stars in the heaven. Do not miss this. This is what, what God is saying to Israel in this moment. This is the Babe Ruth shot. This is God pointing over the fence. This is the mighty Casey moment. This is God pointing down through history and saying that I am about to send a Messiah. That you have a sin problem. You have a problem that you cannot fix. You are broken. You're trying to fix it. I've given you sacrifices. I've given you things to do. I've given you ways to put band-aids on it. And some days you're going to do well with that and other days that you're not. But all it proves is, is that you cannot do anything about your sin problem on your own. But what he's asked Israel to do is he's asked them to be different than all the people around them. While all the people around them are victimizing widows, they're victimizing orphans, and they're victimizing sojourners. They're taking advantage of them. They're enslaving them. They're, they're, they're treating them poorly sexually. They're, they're doing anything because they don't have rights and they don't have a voice. While all the peoples around them are doing that, God is saying to them, I want you to be different. I want you to bring them in. I want you to care for them. I want you to take them into, their, into your families. I want you to provide for them in offerings. I want you to leave things in the field so that they can be fed. I want you to make provision for them. Because I want you to look like me. Because that's what I'm about to do for you and a Messiah. So Israel, what I want you to do is I want you to testify to the peoples of the world about who I am. So that over and over and over and over again, the peoples of the world will look at you and they will see who your God is and they will understand who I am and they will expect the Messiah that I'm about to send through you. Look at it. Continue to go through. Watch. Look at the passages that are up on the screen. Deuteronomy, Exodus, Psalms. You can go through. You can see this all the way through. Look at the passages in Isaiah that refer to orphans. Look at the passages um, down through the minor prophets, even going as far as, as, as down into, uh, all the way down through, the, uh, through all of the minor prophets. Every time widows, orphans, and sojourners are mentioned throughout the Old Testament, whether it's God rebuking the people because they haven't cared for them or it's God giving the people an admonition to care for them. It's always the same deal. God is saying, do it because it shows something about my character or he's rebuking the people and saying, you've been living in disobedience and one of the evidences that you've been living in disobedience is that you're not showing the people around you my character. Does that make sense? So over and over and over again, what God is saying to his people is the way you care for widows and orphans testifies to my character and ultimately it testifies to the gospel. It testifies to, the, to my goodness and it testifies to my sending of salvation. 
Because this is how I send salvation. That when you were defenseless, when you had no ability to save yourself, when you were dead in your sins, when you were dead in your trespasses, when you could do nothing to save yourself, I provided for you. So we jump over on the other side of the cross. We look at a verse like James 1.27. What does James 1.27 say? Pure religion is this. To visit widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So we as the church then receive that counsel. We look at that. We receive what James has said. We look at it. Now, first of all, in English, we read James 1.27 and we say, okay, we're supposed to visit widows and orphans. So that means go by and drop them off a donut, right? Wrong. The word visit in English It's a bad translation. It ought to be the word pastor, shepherd. Same word that we take take from pastor, like what Barrett does here is your pastor. That we should lead them, that we should care for them, that we should shepherd them, that we should watch over them, that we should protect them, that we should provide that kind of care for widows and orphans, for those that are defenseless, for those that are voiceless. 153 million orphans in the world. That's a UNICEF definition. That means children that have lost one parent to death. There are 18 million double orphans in the world. That means that they've lost both parents to death. Somewhere between 8 and 10 million of those children are adoptable to to what we would call international adoption or to come out of their countries. All of those numbers are really bad numbers. We truly don't know how many vulnerable children there are in the world that the Bible would call fatherless. When you consider the number of street children that there are, when you consider the number of children that have been stolen and trafficked, when, the number, when we consider the number of children that are living in, in, in other kinds of victimized situations, we have no way of knowing how many children there are that, that we need to stand in the gap for. And this is not just an adoption problem. As a matter of fact, it's, it's, almost, it's, it's very likely that it's not really even an adoption problem for us. There are more ways that you and I need to be, to be involved. So why haven't we been involved in, in doing this to this point? Well, there are probably four reasons. One, they're not screaming at us. There's not a single orphan sitting in the middle of us this morning saying, hey, do something about this. They don't vote. They don't get on television. They don't, they don't sign petitions. They're out of the way. They're not, they're not advocating for themselves. The second thing is we've, we've come to believe that this is the state's problem. In our own context, DH, DCS takes care of that. That's why we pay our taxes. That may be why we pay our taxes. We may have, have convinced ourselves that that's, that's the, the way it should be, but James 127 in the Council of the Bible says that it's not a state problem, that it's a church problem. That God's given us the mantle to take up to care for the fatherless, not the government to do it. Go, go look in, in, by the way, let me just, this is free advertisement. Go to Job chapter 29. Job, there's, there's a really interesting verse. I'm not going to read this, but go and look at what Job says. When Job is defending his character in summary in, in Job chapter 29, there's a really interesting passage where he's, he's saying, I, listen, There was a point where God was holding me up and he was defending me and God wasn't letting anything happen to me. And at that point, I went into the gate. And then he lists all of these things that he did when he went into the gate. Well, you know what Job was doing when he went into the gate? 
He was acting as one of the elders of the community, and he, he was using his voice to seek justice for all of those groups that he lists. So one of the things that Job was doing is he was using his place in the seat of government to seek justice. So if we want to put things off on the state, one of the things the church has to do is to begin to be active in the state, to be active in the government to seek justice through the state. That's free. Okay. Second, our third thing is the social gospel. A lot of us that have run in, in, in conservative circles got afraid of the fact that mainline churches began to equate salvation with doing good. Does that make sense? Some of you guys are looking at me like, some of y'all have enough snow on the roof like I do that you know what I'm talking about. There was a point back in the, you know, back in the, like the 1950s, 60s, 70s, where there was, a, there was kind of a theological divide that happened. And in that theological divide, there were a lot of churches that began to preach, if you just go out and feed people and take care of their physical needs, Jesus will be pleased enough with you that, that that'll be your salvation. So churches that believe that you have to follow Jesus and put your trust in him and become a disciple and begin to walk with him for salvation, churches that believe that began to run away from doing tangible things to take care of people's physical needs because they didn't want to be mixed up in that mess. We've got to get back to the place where we understand that it's not either or, but it's both and. We have to meet physical needs because Jesus met physical needs as we meet spiritual needs and lead people to confess Christ and begin to walk with Christ. The last thing is revivalist Christianity. For a long time, people in conservative contexts like us that would tell people that they have to confess Christ and walk with him have been far too concerned with just getting people to confess Christ we haven't been concerned with discipleship. One of the things I love about this church is this church is concerned about helping you to learn how to walk with Jesus and about walking with you in community as you walk with Jesus. Part of walking in community is learning how to help the community walk with Jesus and about, about helping to heal the hurts of the community as we walk with Jesus. So as we move on, Matthew 25 earlier was read in front of you. Jesus is talking about separating the sheep and the goats. And he says, you know, there were some of you that, 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 that you fed the hungry and, and you clothed the naked and you visited those who were in prison and you did those things. And when you did those things, you were doing those things to me. But there were others of you that ignored the hungry and you ignored the naked and you ignored those who were in prison. And when you did those things, you ignored me. And when you did, when you ignored them, you ignored me, and I don't know you, so step off and you don't have any part in my kingdom. Is Jesus saying at that point that good works are the things that merit his favor? No, what he's saying is, is those who have been redeemed, those who have been changed by a relationship with Christ are inevitably going to do good works. Because here's how it goes. If you squeeze a grape, what are you going to get? audience participation portion of our program. You're going to get grape juice, right? If you squeeze a, a Christian, what are you going to get? If you squeeze somebody who walks with Jesus and has truly been changed by a relationship with Jesus and is indwelled by the Spirit, you're going to get good works. Because we can't help but work out what's going on on the inside. And part of those good works are things like caring for orphans. And so the gospel isn't in conflict with our mission. It's part of our mission. So practically, how can we do this? I'm so glad you asked. Well, there, I think there are like five things that this church can do or any church can do, and it's stuff like this. It's adoption ministry, 
foster care ministry, ministry to and through institutions, transitional assistance, and stuff like orphan hosting. And I'm just going to go through. I'm going to tell you a few stories real quick, and, and then we're going to be done. So what are the kind of things that you can do in, in, a, in, a, in an adoption ministry? Well, one thing that, that, that you could very practically do is, is help as a church to help people to explore adoption. There, there are all kinds of ways, by, by even opening your facility and allowing seminars to be taught here, just to let people have a, a free and open forum to be able to ask questions about adoption. There are tons of people that were just like I was that have questions and they just want a safe place to be able to come where they're not going to be judged, where, where nobody's going to point a finger at them. They want, they want counsel, they want good counsel, and a lot of them want biblical counsel about what is it that God says about adoption, and, and they just want a free place to be able to do that. Another thing I think that the church has to do, if we're going to advocate for adoption and we're going to say adoption is a good thing to do, we have to be prepared as church communities to come around adoptive families and to support them. One of the things that I think we haven't come to grips with in the church, everybody, and somebody said it on the video, adoption is not for everybody. One of the things that scares me about a lot of what's begun to happen in evangelical churches with regard to, to the adoption or orphan care movement is there are a lot of folks that I think have started to move toward this and they're treating it like the camp crush of the moment. You guys remember camp crushes? Some of you guys were just like at youth camp. I'm looking at you and I'm really envious, you know? You scare me. I'm gray, and I don't remember that. But like in seventh grade, you remember you went to camp, you know, and, and it was like, you know, like Monday, you know, you met a guy or girl, and like by Monday night, you were dating, and by like Tuesday, you were madly in love, and by like Friday, you were like having a big snot cry when you got on the bus to go home, and by like next Monday, you didn't remember their name anymore. Well, that's kind of how, you know, some of the stuff that we, I think we're feeling about this, we have a terrible history in evangelicalism of having these things that kind of come on the scene for a moment and, and then, then they're gone. This can't be that because we're dealing about the real lives of real people. And here's the deal. With kids that are orphans, they've been disappointed once or more than once. They're the product of broken homes and broken relationships, and we cannot afford to do that to them again. Shame on us if we do. So in the name of Jesus, we have to bring to them stability. We have to bring to, things, to, to them homes and things that count. And part of that is, is the church coming around families who commit to adopt a lot of families that I've counseled with over the years who have stepped into adoption, step into adoption thinking that the, the hard part is getting to a child, never realizing that the hard part starts when they come home. That's when you start to peel the onion and you start to, to realize the experiences and the stuff and the baggage that they have and you start to figure out stuff about yourselves and all that. And, and that's when a church community can really rally around in, in support and resources and prayer and love and babysitting and all kinds of stuff to, to support a family. You know, some of the other things, the, the ministry referral you know, one of the things I know that this church has is there are people that are, that are professionals and would-be professionals and people in the medical community, the psychology community. There are folks that are in this church that have resource 
You could be a resource in this community to adopting families and to foster families. You have things that are in your hands, that are at your disposal, that there are families that are literally dying and desperate for in this community to have. And if you would step up and make yourself known and give a few hours of your time to use your expertise to be able to pour into the lives of those families, there are families that are literally dying to, 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 be, to be able to get advantage of, of some of that expertise. You know, um, <clears throat> adoption funding. S- adoptions, particularly international adoptions, cost a lot. And they can, they can be cost prohibitive for one family to step in to do, but when 20 or 30 families come together and, and pool their resources to do, they, they literally can become incredibly doable. I've seen churches that have, that have, when they've pulled their resources together, we've seen amazing things happen. Now, I'll tell you this. This is my standard line about this. I thought that an international adoption was undoable. I thought that that was a price tag that was too big to pay until somebody looked me dead in the eye and said, what would you pay for a car? And I kind of had to swallow hard. Because I realized that I would pay for a car and stretch the payments out over four or five years, and, and, I, and, and, and that was really not too much different than what I might pay for an adoption. And so when we began to think sacrificially about that, foster care, some of the things you can do, reach out to DCS, host foster care trainings. Do some stuff to pour into the lives of workers within the DCS system. Some of the most beat up, some of the most hard, overworked, some of the most put-upon people in the world are people working in the DCS system. And nobody ever tells them that they love them. <laughs> nobody ever helps them out. Madam, am I telling the truth? One thing that this church could do immediately to make an impact in this city would be an intentional ministry to begin to work toward loving the caseworkers that are working within the DCS system. The other kind of things that you can do is to begin to take up stuff like resources to help DCS workers provide for kids that are being taken into immediate placements. Just stuff like toothpaste, underwear, um, you know, basic necessities, because many times kids are taken into immediate placement and they're ripped right out of a circumstance and put right into another circumstance and they don't have the basic needs. In, in my last church, one of the things we found, we went in, we asked the folks at DCS, and we said, hey, what's something we can do? And they said, nine times out of ten, when we take a kid out of a, out of a home and we put them into a placement, they move from one place to another, and typically two or three times they'll move, and they take their stuff from one place to another in garbage bags or Kroger sacks. Could you guys do something about that? So we held a drive, and we got these these duffel bags that they sell at Walmart that are like these collapsible, zippable duffel bags, got a ton of them, took them and gave them to our local DCS, and and they were blown away. We called it a dignity bag drive because because what we we wanted to do was provide these kids with some dignity as they move their belongings from one place to another, that they were able to take them in duffel bags, and, and they actually had luggage to move their stuff so that they didn't move their stuff in trash bags. Because we wanted, wanted them to know that they were valuable and that they were created in the image of God. They weren't trash. And that was important. Ministry to and through institutions. Now, I'm going to say something up front. I think kids were made for families. I think men made institutions. God created kids for families. Men created institutions for children. 
So, so let me say that right off the bat. I don't think institutions are the best plan for kids, but I think the reality is we have institutions right now, and, and, and some of those are the best things that we can do. I think in many cases, some of the things that we've done where we've created family-style institutions for kids are some of the greatest places that we have for kids to be. Some of the, I can tell you stories about some places domestically and internationally where kids are in family-style kinds of, kinds of places, particularly kids that are unadoptable, and those kids are being loved on in family-like environments, and it, it is, it's amazing the kind of care that they're getting. But one of the places we can stand in the gap in the body of Christ is to do ministry to those institutions, particularly in those places where kids are in places that look like child warehouses in, in an international context. Over and over and over again, particularly in Eastern Europe, I have been in and out of institutions where, where, where the mindset is that, that they literally put kids in environments where they don't want to have human contact with children because they think they're harming them by building attachments with them. And one of the things that we've seen and taken on as a ministry is to go in to try to retrain and and to try to re-educate the workers within those institutions to tell them, no, you don't want, you're not harming the child, you're harming the child if you don't build an attachment with them. So we try to go in and retrench and retrain and tell them, you want to have the same workers spending time with those children. You want to hold them. You want to build attachment because you're helping that child to build a stable, um, basically a stable attachment that will serve them for the rest of their lives as as a crucial building block for, for their entire life. Now, some of you listen to that. Some of you that have developmental psychology kind of backgrounds, you listen to that and that clicks and you go, I understand exactly why you say that. Some of you guys are going, hey, I don't know so much about that. Well, let me tell you this. That makes sense from a developmental psychology background, but it also makes sense from a, from a faith development background. And here's why. Because if a child begins and they get a healthy sense of attachment in the beginning and an infant grows a healthy sense of attachment, and they learn that the world is a trusting place and that there's somebody that they can attach to and trust, study after study after study indicates that they will have an easier time developing a trust relationship with Christ later in life. Because if they have a healthy basic sense of trust in their life early, then that, that healthy basic sense of trust is easily transferred to a basic sense of trust with Christ later in life. And so what we do early on by helping those workers learn how to, how to treat kids well pays great dividends later in that child's ability to, to, to easily, more easily accept um, the ability to walk with Jesus later. Another thing in this Constant Christian Presence program, it's the idea of actually sending missionaries into orphanages with older kids that are about to transfer out of the orphanage. In most countries, many countries throughout the world, at about 16 years old, the government begins the process of transferring those kids out and saying to them, it's time for you to go. Some of them, a year or two two before they, they finish a high school education, it's time for you to go. The government sometimes will provide them some, uh, some sort of an ability to cash a check or, or have some way to live. Sometimes they don't. But they're put on the outside, and the statistics are very bleak for what happens to those children later. 
there are ministries that are beginning to pop up around the world that send missionaries into those orphanages and in and, and around grade 8 or 9 will begin to meet with those kids, disciple them, and help them to form a transition plan that they'll help them not only learn to walk with Jesus, but they'll help them to learn a skill and begin to think about what happens for life on the outside. Something we can begin to do as churches is begin to think about sending people and also begin to think about sending resources that would help them later. Um, last thing that I want to talk to you about, we'll skip over uh, the transitional assistance, and let's talk about orphan hosting for just a minute. One last way that we, that, that we as churches can be involved is, um, is by hosting kids, bringing them to, and, and this is particularly with international orphans, bringing them to the states in, in like camp kind of environments, giving them an opportunity to come here um, great way of sharing hope. It's a great way of sharing the gospel. Um, great way of helping them to see a world outside of the world that they live in. This is particularly effective with institutionalized orphans. Several years ago, my wife and I were a part of starting a nonprofit down in Mississippi where we brought kids, have brought kids for several years from Eastern Europe to come, come to the States, have several weeks to be here to, to kind of live um, in a, in a camp-like setting with a family, um, to be loved on by a community. Um, the results have been amazing. We've seen kids that have, that have been loved unconditionally. We've seen kids respond to the gospel. Um, it, it's been incredible. Some of those kids have been adopted. Some of them haven't. For the ones that haven't been adopted, we've seen, them, we've seen a, lots of them be able to transition into a transitional assistance program where they've been able to step over the divide into a home where they've been able to live beyond their, their time in the orphanage and begin to transition into um, to independent life and learn a skill. And so there's some really cool things that are happening with some stories there. I want to tell you a story about one, one of the kids that was part of our first hosting group. He was 15 years old, came to us. He had been in the orphanage at that point for a little over a year. His story was, was really bleak. At 15 years old, he was, he was reading on about a third grade level He'd never been, really never been to school. He had, a, had, had been in school for about a year and a half. He'd been profoundly neglected. He'd been removed from the care of his mother after um, just living in a, in, a, in a really terrible situation. Alcoholic mom. She didn't send him to school, didn't care for him. He pretty much had to, had to fend for himself. He was a great kid. Um, just really flourished during the time that he was here. When we sat down with the, the orphanage director and, and heard his story, um, it, it was amazing to see who he was. He, he was the kind of kid that was, you know, was just very caring and, and would, you know, stop and open the door for ladies and was always trying to, always trying to help and always trying to, you know, to, to, to do something to be a part of, of, of you know, of taking care of somebody. Um, toward the end of our camp, he spent um, about three weeks with us. Um, toward the end of our camp, somebody sat down with him and, uh, and, and they, they wanted to just talk to him about life. He'd spent three weeks hanging out. There were about 200 volunteers that had come from our community over the course of three weeks that had interacted with these kids. Um, they'd been taught the gospel. They'd been shown the gospel. They'd been loved on in, in amazing ways. When somebody sat down with him to kind of have a debriefing interview, one of the questions they asked him, they said, Kolya, what, um, what are you going to remember most about your time in America? And he said, um, 
We expected him to say something like, you know, being able to ride a bicycle or ride horses or, or, or go to an American baseball game or, or some of the events or some of the things that we did or, or you know, talk about some of the, the crazy experiences that they'd had, things that he'd never been able to do in his life or, you know, go on an airplane, come to America, those sorts of things. He sat for a minute and he said, he said, I'm going to remember these people. And he stopped and he said, because I've never seen people treat each other the way these people do. They help each other. They take care of each other. And they don't want anything from each other. They just love. I've never seen that before. Where I come from, everybody's looking out for themselves. And everybody's just trying to get something. And you always have to protect yourself. I've never seen anything like this. And the time I've been here has really made me start to think. I've never really thought about having a future. But I'm really starting to think about what I might do with my life. That was pretty cool. He got on a plane and he went home. Well... Little did he know, little did we know. Um, about two years later, he was adopted into a family in our community. A year and a half later, he was adopted into our family. Ad adopted into a family. Um, about six months later, I had the opportunity to baptize him. And in having the conversation with him, and I said, man, what... What caused, what caused you to begin the journey to trust Jesus? He said it was coming to America. He said it was hanging out with Christians. Because I'd never seen anybody act like that before. He said all I'd ever known was people that would take and take and take and want and want and want. And he said, for the first time in my life, I was around people and all they wanted to do was give and give and give and love and love and love. And he said, I just spent time around that and I went home and I couldn't, I couldn't get rid of that. I couldn't, I couldn't get that off my mind. And he said, I just knew I wanted that. And I just knew that that would make my life different. I think that's the responsibility that we have to the orphans of the world. To expose them to the gospel, um, to give them the difference of the gospel, and to give them the implications of the gospel in, in what we give them in life. Today, if you're here, um, I, I don't want to leave without giving you an opportunity to respond. And I think that this sort of this sort of time kind of lends itself to three potential ways to respond. One, I think, you know, you may be here today 
And, um, and it may be that you're here and you heard the truth of Ephesians 1 and you're sitting here and, and you're saying, um, I, I, don't, I really don't know for sure that, that I'm an adopted child of the king. That I heard it, I know it, but I don't have the assurance that that I've trusted Christ, that I've that I've trusted what Christ has done for me, and that that I've given my life to Christ and accepted the adoption that God has provided for for me. Today's the best day for you to do that. Right now is the best time for you to do that because um, because there's no there's no better time than immediately God's provided it for you he's extended the invitation he's he's given everything that's needed and God's made that 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 offer open there's absolutely nothing we can do to save ourselves or to fix ourselves Maybe you're here today and you're part of the family. You know that you have been adopted into God's family. You know that you've trusted Christ. You know that you've been walking with Christ. But maybe your story today is a lot more like the prodigal son. That you've been, you've been feeding on junk food more than you've been feeding on stuff at the banquet table of the Father. And you find yourself fairly dissatisfied because you haven't really been living up to your birthright. Today would be a great day for you to say, God, I understand the depths of what you did for me in Christ. I understand what you paid for in my adoption. And, and God, I just, I just want to fall at your feet. And I just want to say thank you. And and Lord, I I just want to be right in that relationship and I just want to be yielded. Maybe you're here today and something that was said in all of this just sparked something in you. And and you're here to say, God, I don't know what. I don't know how. I don't know where. Maybe it's adoption. Maybe it's foster care. maybe Maybe it's just advocating politically maybe who knows what it is but God I just I just want to be obedient to do to do something to be a voice for the fatherless and Lord I want you to use me and I want you to use me well and I'm, I'm committing I, I don't really know how you guys do this here but I'm, I'm going to make sort of kind of a wide open invitation so if you want to talk if you want to pray if there's a decision you want to make we can do that here but I also just kind of want to make this place an altar so if you want to just come and pray um, that's kind of what we do at our church. I kind of like to invite you to do that too. If you just want to come and kneel here and pray and, and just do some business with God and say, Lord, I just, I just want to take a step, talk, pray, confess, or just say thanks. This will be an appropriate time. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Lord, we thank you for your love and your grace. God, we thank you for um, the fact that you that you didn't leave us as orphans. 
God, that you uh, that you saw us in the middle of our sin and our rebellion and our mess. And God, you had compassion on us. God, you took the initiative that you, Jesus stepped out of heaven, you came and walked in the middle of us, that you bore rejection. Spirit, today I pray that you would, uh, you would just be over this time, lead us to respond. Thank you for, for the truth of your word. And thank you for giving us a part in your business. Lord, we love you and we thank you. Have your way in this time.